look, if I think back to cycling tips over all the years, the one thing I can really hand on heart say about that organization is integrity is number one, like journalistic integrity. And you can also see that in the content. I think that you can see that in people being kind of excited about the things that they were putting out. It was genuinely impressive, sort of the, the culture that was built at that point. CT didn't end the way that it should have. When it all started to fall apart, there was a real feeling from the community that this would be missed. A lot of us, and certainly Wade, had this feeling of unfinished business. From Escape Collective, this is Overnight Success, the podcast about the entrepreneurs, the personalities, and the passionate people who make up the sport of cycling and the stories behind the icons they've built. G'day, listeners. We've got a bit of a different episode for you this time round. My name is Mitch Docker, and I am the host of the Life in the Peloton podcast. Now, instead of monologuing about his story, Wade has asked me to come in and host this episode and ask him how he built the business of cycling tips. That amazing story that hasn't been told in one place. Guys, I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and here we go. Well, let's start. Let's let's talk about, because what I want to do, I actually want to find out who Wade Wallace is before we move into the story of cycling tips. I don't actually know the story of how you ended up in Australia and how you ended up, you know, as a cycling sort of fanatic, a fan, you know, a real fan of the sport. Take me back to Canada and I just initially think, surely you played ice hockey. Yeah, like any good Canadian kid from the moment I could almost walk, I was on ice and you played ice hockey and you, nine months of the year, that's what you did. And it was just all I knew. I remember, like I grew up in this town of like 1200 people and it was a unique town because it was like a nuclear research facility was mm. the town industry. It's called Pinawa in, in Manitoba, close to Winnipeg. And um, mm. just looking from the outside now in, it was just an amazing way to grow up and uh, kind of this amazing um, group uh, of, of, of friends and families and everything to grow up around. So ice hockey was the big thing, but in summers we always just, you know, BMXs and mm. made little ramp jumps and then I got a mountain bike when that became a thing in, I don't know, mid to late eighties, went oh. around stuff like that. And but in that the beginning, was, like right on those early mountain bikes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, yeah, just uh, specialized rock hopper, Norco, something or other were my first mountain bikes. Yeah, yeah, th- those were great. But again, like we had three months of no snow, basically, or summer that you could do that. So cycling was, I remember it was a far off sport in a far off land. And I just remember my dad taking me, one of the, my first movie memories besides Star Wars was American Flyers. Mm. I don't know why my dad took me to that. But I always remember seeing it and just thinking, like, this exists. And that's the thing. I think what I'm trying to understand here is, you know, as we know cycling tips, and as a lot of people know cycling tips, and we'll get to that later, is it's a it's a breadth of knowledge of cycling there. 
And mm. you'd think that it's someone who's just grown up with cycling from day dot. Their dad was a pro and they knew everything about it. Yeah. But it sounds like to me, and you can tell me the rest of the story here, you're just a, a, an everyday, you know, casual cyclist, just loved riding your bike as a boy. And then, you know, as you said, you got into mountain biking. Yeah, like, and and that's all cycling was, is it was this thing I picked up and went on a couple of trails or whatever. And then, you know, I went to university in a city in Canada called Calgary. And like, I remember after I graduated and I got a job, the whole reason I actually got into mountain biking was by complete mistake and this this crazy sort of turn of events where I had a, I had a job lined up. I went to my first day of the job and the whole, it was a telecommunications company called Nortel and the place was on fire the day I showed wow. up. Fire engines and smoke. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And like, like $15 an hour. I could buy a Mustang. I could buy a stereo. Like I was just like, you know, young 20, whatever year old dream come true. And the place is on fire. So anyway, I go back home and like there's no f- mobile phones or anything to call a manager and they got bigger problems on their hands. So I, I went home and weeks later or whatever it was, I got back in touch with the manager and I went and they said, uh, show up this day. And there were a lot of people they were hiring at this point. So like about a hundred people had kind of been affected and, and we were all just sort of, you know, corralled in and went through onboarding and I was promptly set to sent to a place that made cables. Like we were making thousands of cables by hand a day. Like it was on a production line, and I'm like, "Yeah, I, I'm supposed to be like this this engineering job." And I'm like, you know, putting out my hand sheepishly. Like I don't think I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> and they uh, they kind of wouldn't listen. It was very hectic and stuff. So I was sitting beside a guy who was a pro mountain biker like he would race the world cups and stuff but oh, also wow. he would uh do this job for decent money in, in between you know to fund it and everything and uh i'm like really that you can happens do that? Yeah. yeah can you do that and because I, I have a mountain bike and i went out with him and i i asked him like can you can you show me and mm. and i remember him absolutely like it was kind of an asshole thing to do then i think back of it like he took me down stuff that i was nowhere prepared to like i was wearing cut off jean shorts and a baseball cap <laughs> but then i went to watch him and there was a it was a world cup or a canada cup or something like that and i remember seeing him you know warming up in the trailers and all the people and yeah. like this like i didn't know this existed this yeah. is amazing i'm like i'm gonna do that one day cool. you know what yes yeah, so i thought it was the most amazing thing it captured me ever since mm. right i just cycling that was it bought myself a $1,200 mountain bike that's gonna be the last mountain bike I'd ever have to buy because <laughs> I'd spend a lot of money on it and uh bought a helmet and went from there yeah and and then you were you were in the scene or just sort of started bubbling on the side because you're an engineer as you said and you obviously you know made your bread that way or got your bread that way so like that was just your hobby on the side was it yeah yeah and I never did anything in cycling notable but you know, that did lead to road racing and, and uh, you know, seeing Lance in 99 win the mm. Tour de France and that story, how that captivates everybody. And no matter, no matter how many times I hear that story, I, I got to hear it again in a different way. Um, but yeah, that's where, you know, the training for mountain biking became more on the road because it's more structured and predictable and, and yeah, but, you know, just racing Cat 1-2 around, you know, Canada and North America and stuff. But like, you know, you take your vacation to do it or long weekends or whatever, but that was the extent of it. Yeah. We're sitting here in Melbourne, Australia now, 
tell me about how you ended up here, you know, because, well, not because, but, you know, it it wasn't cycling. Um, well, I don't think it was. You know, it doesn't sound like it was for me. You were just sort of enjoying that at that level. How'd you end up here? Quarter life crisis, I guess. I was about, <laughs> I was about 30 and like I got a job offer and we packed up and I brought nothing but a bike, a guitar and a suitcase. And it was a cyclocross bike, mm. which was not seen here at all at the time. And One of um, the first cyclocross bikes into Australia, I hear. It, it, that's, that, that's what I say. It might <laughs> probably would have been. Well, let's fast forward to then 2008 and the first blog. Kind of been interested in blogs. And there was this, there's this one by Seth Godin. He's like this marketeer guru, amazing um, blog. He has written very insightful thing. And um, I loved it. And the, the company I was working for, the same one, Nortel, went into bankruptcy in the global financial crisis in 2008. And very quickly, I was stuck there. I couldn't find another job because mm. I was tied to my work visa to that company. No one was hiring. If they laid me off, I had to go home. Uh, it was all, it was, I was really stuck there, right? And mm. I wasn't ready to go home and unprepared. And so instead of going for coffee every day with my colleagues talking doom and gloom because we were literally doing nothing, huh. um, I'm like, I'm just, I, I, I like some people's blogs. I ate them up whenever I, I read them and I'm going to do one. And I don't know what I'm going to do it about. Like, I'm not qualified to do about anything, but it was just interesting moving to Australia. Like, I would just see all these things that people do or talk mm. about. I learned a lot because you guys were far more connected to road cycling than ever we were in North America, right? Mm. Like it just still a far off sport. I didn't learn about things like nutrition or race tactics or even the way we rolled in the wind was usually like, there was no rhyme or reason to it. Right. Mm. Like it was like, I, I learned all that in Australia, huh. um, much better. I mean, not simple things like that, but a lot of other things. And, um, and, and I just thought, I'm just going to learn, write about these things because they're coming to me all the time. And I was literally writing, the audience was Beach Road. Like mm. that, it wasn't like, I'm going to reach this global audience. It's just, gonna, I'm going to write for my friends or whatever, right? And I knew a little bit about training, but not only what I've been told to do, but thinking back, I was hugely underqualified. <laughs> but at the same time, like you got to remember too, like there there was nothing out there on this. Like when I, when I Googled like, nutrition or whatever like there was a a website that was called cycling tips that came up and i was always googling things like cycling tips for nutrition and you know now you would call that like search engine optimization but back then i'm just like i want a top stop top spot on google because i know that's the only way people are going to find this Mm. but it was literally 10 minutes of thought and i opened up this google blogspot account i don't know i'll call it cycling tips and (laughs) what do i write about the ride that I just did yesterday. Like it was literally at dinner and started that way. Yeah, it was nothing. And the knowledge for that first blog, was that stuff that you went and researched yourself or that was stuff you picked up from writing with people? And or is that just, you know, stuff that you knew? Like were you downplaying it because you're like, look, I already know this, but I know a lot of people want to know this. Or this is stuff that I've had to go and research because I want to know this. Mm. Like what sort of level were you thinking like these tips, were you like, this is stuff that I've learned and I know people want to know it or what What kind of vision did you have in the very beginning, if yeah. you had any? This stuff like was not anywhere 
uh, or very few places. And you know this sport, right? It's just the school of hard knocks. Like you learn it by rough and tough, you know, old school people mm. and, you know, being at the back and all that. And, and, um, I know that comes up again and again, but I, I wanted to break down barriers. I literally wanted to like have this information out there. And, and the thing is though, is there wasn't anywhere to really check this either. Like I might've been saying things that might not have been right. Like that first blog post, but it wasn't investigative journalism or anything and like that. And it's a blog post. You can almost say what you want to say. You know, yeah. you weren't trying to fool people, but if it wasn't exactly to the point, that was the beautiful thing about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I didn't know what I didn't know, right? Like, yeah, it was just me. I didn't even look, read it like or spell check it or anything like that. I just like this, you know, this is, this is how you would uh, roll into the, turn off into the wind and the crosswinds, right? I've learned that and here's how that works. Like look at a school of geese and how they do it type things. <laughs> Tell me then about the next few weeks, few months, what was the, the roll-on effect from that? Was it just purely the, the enjoyment you had or you actually started to get some feedback from people? Yeah, like comments were a thing, right? But I remember people would comment. I'm like, wow, someone read this. Mm. But I'm like, well, I've already said my thing. I'm not going to reply to them. Like, it seems so obvious now, but it's like, no, like, maybe I'll let someone else reply to them. And someone, a good friend of mine, uh, said, no, reply to the comments. They they want to engage with you, not with anybody else. And and then that became a thing. Like, it was like, I was getting sometimes 400 comments oh post, which um, once I started answering them and a discussion took place, and then people started answering each other's questions or just comments or whatever. And again, these were like, literally often people I knew or maybe names I didn't know, but you know, and little things started coming my way. Like maybe, uh, someone would say, Hey, I've got a DVD for a giveaway. You want to do that to your audience? And, but I didn't really think of them as an audience. These are, I don't know, it's a blog, right? I'm just people I'm speaking to or whatever. And, but yeah, it was just weird thinking back. It wasn't, there's no intention to it. There was just like, if you these days opened up a TikTok account, right? That was the the end of it. <laughs> so it sounds like to me, you're getting sucked into it. You know, the comments, it was, it was, it was just, a, it was engaging for you. You put something mm. up, people came back. It was, it's exciting. I mm. remember when I first started life in the Peloton, I never had any financial gain from that. And I didn't care either because it was enough for me, the feed and a little feedback. I'm not talking about 400 comments. I would literally get a passing by comment, you know, two, three times a year. And that was enough for me because I'm yeah. like, people are liking this. So I can understand what you're talking about. It's enough for you. Yeah. Keeps did you going. Did yeah. you did you think this is like ever at that point there? Like, oh, this is something I could really do. It was just really just something you're just bubbling away. This is 2008. Not at all. And I remember the first advertiser I ever had was Ride Magazine. And um, Ride, uh, a, a guy who worked with him named Toby, he contacted me. Their Tour de France edition was coming up. Can we advertise? And I'm like, I don't even know anything about this. Like, and, uh, how much? $200, I said. Like, no rhyme or reason. I'm like, is that too much? Is it too little? I'll throw that out there. And he's like, yeah, cool. I just figured out how to put an image, like a GIF image that's no different than the GIF images today. And I put it up there. And I think I might've wrote a post saying like, Hey, this is out now. Thank you for sponsoring it. And cool. that was it. And, um, and, and, you know, at the same time I was reading like, um, like bike snob, New York city, um, that cyclist, um, there was, uh, 
there's a few others. Um, I wish I could remember them, but there was some, like there was an ecosystem of cycling mm. blogs out there and I wanted like that rose my level, mm. right? Like that was like, Ooh, I got a like bike snob. My God, this guy was a phenomenal writer and hilarious. And, and he was the gold standard, right? He was just absolutely, um, what I wanted to be, but didn't have the personality. So I had to do something different. And inner ring was also one that came up not too far after. And, um, that was, that was, uh, I really still enjoy what he does. I still go there every day. So what was happening outside of the blog then? Because as you said, you know, you, you, the business, um, as an engineer was, was in trouble. Um, Mm. what was the next step for you then? I got laid off. I like, it would just became every day suits would come in and you just knew there's another round of hundred people being laid off. And finally, you know, I got laid off while there were still severance packages. So, which bought me some time Mm. and, but I was still looking for jobs. I was applying for jobs. And I remember, I think I had about two, no, three advertisers at the time. It was bike force, place called cycling edge and i'm trying to remember now um if it was ride who kept on advertising i think they were long story short um i was still applying for jobs but that gave me enough money to like pay our rent but i finally got a um a job in in that was mostly in india i had to travel to india for like really weeks at a time and as an engineer yeah yeah and i'm like geez i I come all the way and bring my now wife all the way to Australia. And now I'm just going <laughs> to displace her and be in India all the time and back and forth. And like, but like, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and it was kind of tough time with the economy and like, what else am I going to do? Just not accept this job and hang out until the perfect one comes. Then I can't live off this blog. Can't live off the blog. But I remember we were, my wife and I were taking a walk down the beach and just one night and I said like, should I do this? And like same concerns as I just spoke about. And she's like, well, we're paying our rent off this blog. Like why don't you just stick with it? And that was mm. the first time where I'm like, should this be something that makes us money and depends on it? That we can depend on it? And But that was that first sort of, I wasn't looking for it, but a show of support that gave me a little bit of freedom to say, no, I won't take that job. And I'll just- Did it get you excited inside? Like, this is something I really love doing on the side. Imagine I could do this as my job and I don't have to go and work and then come home and try and do the thing that I find fun. It still never crossed my mind. Like, this is not a job. It's like, uh, I don't know, uh, having an if I had an Instagram account with 100,000 followers where I just- I don't know. Like, I know a lot of people do take that as a job right now, but that wasn't <laughs> a thing. Yeah. It wasn't a thing. I did get another consulting role here in Melbourne. I hated it, but I still did the blog my every single night when I got home. That was my commitment. Every weekday I would do a blog post and you just get in the habit, right? And as you know, like it, you, you set it in and you, you do it. And, um, but like every vacation I would take, I'd be blogging about it. And if there was a cycling connection or whatever, it was way, it was Wade's story in the end. Mm. Right. Cause I started realizing that dry tips of like, here's what you do. It's so much better when you wrap it in a story, mm. but I always tried to sort of have some information in a story and it became, it became Wade's story in the <laughs> end. Yeah. Tell me about Rafa and how you became involved with Rafa, because I think, you know, 
you you can tell the story yourself, but I get the feeling it was a big part of you developing cycling tips into something exactly what you just said there as a job, you know, mm-hmm. that transition of I'm moving 100% into the cycling industry now. Yeah. Um, Rafa was a big fork in the road moment because the way that happened was a good friend of mine, he was doing Soigneur work for the Rafa Condor Sharp team. And when they came for the Herald Sun Tour, and they sort of hire local people, Andy Naylor, if you know that name. Mm -hmm. And uh, Andy said, like, you want to come and do some, you know, just drive the van, get some hotel rooms, check people in and stuff. And I think that was 2009. And I almost guarantee you would have been racing with Draypack at the time, that Sun Tour. Or someone. Yeah, I think maybe I came back and rode for the Australian team. Um, it was my first year pro, and I came back right. and rode, yeah, with um, Richie Port was in that Aussie team, yeah. Really? Mm. So, like, you know, like Darren Lapthorne, um, you know, Simon Thompson from uh, GCN. Um, sorry, Richardson. Sorry, Richardson. Sorry, yeah. Tom yeah. Southam. Tom, Tom Southam. And I remember Tom, like he, he like, cause I was kind of racing in the, you know, NRS level and see you guys there sometimes. And Tom, when he was racing with Dre Pack and, and I remember Tom, like he, he was the first one who sort of like, I've seen your face around. And he really welcomed me into that team. Mm. Cause I was really awkwardly like, you know, just helping out, but also like, I'm going to write blogs about this every day too. Mm. And through that, um, like blogging and, and being with the team, I got this relationship with, someone at Rafa and marketing say, can we use your photos and stuff for this and to do some stuff? And can you write a blog post for us maybe on, on their site? I'm like, yeah, cool. And then, um, after that relationship, uh, long story short, um, I started working for Rafa as an agent in Australia where I basically just sort of set up the local market, did local events, um, Tell them, told them what they need to do here, uh, feet on the ground here, right? Mm-hmm. And I just basically got a commission of online sales. And then uh, we established this as a subsidiary in Australia and New Zealand and um, grew the business from there. But all well, <laughs> I was, I'd wake up at five in the morning, I'd go for my ride, I'd come back, do a blog post until about 11 in the morning. I would do Rafa all afternoon, early evening, because the phone calls started with Europe. And I've never been so incredibly busy in my life, but also like wrapped up, like living my dream, mm. everything to do with cycling and soaking up everything I could learn from Rafa about operating an online business. And I was employee 40 something at Rafa. And mm. like I had weekly calls with Simon Matram, who um, he was just like hustling as well, looking back. Um, so like it was a very small company at the time and just getting going and uh, set it up here in Australia and eventually it was a fork in the road of cycling tips is actually starting to make real money now. And I'm trying to do it all. And Rafa was like, that was good too. But like, you know, you probably know what you would do if you had something of your own versus a job where, and that's just what I, the decision I made too, but it was a big decision at the time. Oh, I can totally see that because going out on your own, it's, it's, it's scary. I'm, I'm at that crux at the moment. I'm at that point where it's like, Life in the Peloton is building up to a business. But I have that same question is, is it a business? Yeah. Is it something? You yeah. know, I know it's something, but is it something? You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's other subs- businesses well set up, established, and you can just roll into the mold. But would I ever be happy there? Yeah. You know, not having my own 
flavor on it, you know, even if it comes down to the way things look. So I can understand that and I can see it now why you did that. It's very easy from here and now knowing everything that's happened. But on the same note, you can also look at Rafa and go, well, that could have also been an awesome pathway mm-hmm. being there from the beginning. Is there any, I guess there's no regrets, but, you know, did you ever think that at any point after that decision? Well, after that, n- no. I mean, I'm so happy the way it all turned out and everything. But at the time, Rafa was like this new, aspirational, innovative brand that was breaking every mold in cycling, right? And to be on that train mm. with so few people and y- you, like, you, it was amazing. It was really, really cool. And you learned a lot. And, but I also had this other thing and it, it, it didn't feel like I was really jumping off a cliff because there was money coming in, right? Far more money than Rafa, just through advertising, you know, and, and, but it was getting too hard. I couldn't sustain, you know, 5 a.m. till 11 p.m. every day mm. of working. And, um, I remember going into Simon's office and I was in London at the time and I just was fretting about telling him because he, you know, that put him in a bad situation. And, um, but he was, you know, he knew he couldn't turn that around. My mind was already made up and, and he gracefully let me, um, encourage me to do my own thing. And mm. that was, that was good. And he had been through it before himself. So I'm sure he knew. And, and then the journey started from there. All that time in Rafa, I guess, you know, you're seeing Rafa start as a company. You were there in the beginning. Um, were you taking notes, mental notes about, okay, this is sort of how a business sort of gets going? Not as much that as understanding that if I wanted to actually make a go of this and knowing the business I was in, as in like it's it's advertising, having the hat on of someone who would potentially advertise with say cycling tips mm. um, and, and me also being on that side as well and knowing what they would want and that type of thing. Not, not as much, um, you know, an online business like that, it, it, it just a very different thing, but mm. it was also like just the way they did everything was, you know, it was a mess in the background, right? It was absolutely, but it, it was just a scramble and hustle, but <laughs> you know, in, in, it was so polished out front. Right. Mm. And maybe just the realities that like it made me comfortable with that's the way it is and stuff. But I mean, I did get a lot out of working with them and, and someone like Simon, like, you know, there's two people I asked myself when I asked myself, like, what would Simon do and what would Seth do? Seth going mm-hmm. in that first blog, whenever I have a tough choice on my hands, I asked like Simon Moxham, he was a very, you know, unwitting, unwitting mentor of mine. Like he wasn't mm. formally, but you know, I always cherish my conversations with him and stuff because he is such a amazing mind. The most perceptive person I think I've ever met. This podcast is fully funded by our members at Escape Collective. In fact, all of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover, and that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please Go to escapecollective.com slash join and become a member today. Thank you for your support. So you go out on your own now and that's it. 
this is it. We're happening. Cycling、mm. tips is happening. At what point there were you like, I need some help here. I need to get someone else on this or multiple people, or was it just I'm going to fly solo here for a while? The th- it wasn't that I needed help. I knew I needed help, but what I first thing I knew I needed to do was here I am doing commercial deals with advertisers,、mm. but I'm also reviewing their product, and I knew I needed to separate that relationship.、Mm. And I didn't know anything about media or editorial best practices or anything. I just knew that felt weird. That I'm the one saying that this bike is good or whatever, and meanwhile I'm also getting paid for this. So I need I knew that needed to actually stop. And I never been called. I was never called out, but I just knew that this was not the way it should be done. And so I did put a call out. I, I said I need a tech editor, someone who was going to be able to do reviews because. I didn't really know what I was talking about anyway, right? I'd be like, "Yeah, this feels nice. It's it's light, ten thousand dollar bike. It's amazing." <laughs> yeah. So I got I I did a call out just on the blog, like you could do, like you might do on Instagram these days, and said, "Hey, who wants to be a tech editor?" And I got a surprising amount of people come back and email me, but there was this one guy named Matt Wickstrom. He was like a immunologist researcher at the University of、uh, Western Australia, I think, and.、Um, Like he's a, he's a scientist, right? He's he's got a PhD, and he wanted to do this as well. And、mm. I'm like, wow! Like, all right, well, let's write let's write something and see see how it goes. But he had just an amazing sort of、uh, way about him of the way he articulated himself when he wrote to me and that, and he was very promising. And and I had some sort of younger options as well, but I thought this didn't feel right in the way of like where he is in life and everything. But also, he was a really unique. Person that I just couldn't pass by, and he became our first at tech editor, and he did a phenomenal job. Like he he was amazing, and、um, but he wasn't paid either, right? It was like yeah, whenever you get a chance, just write something. And so, were you sending in products across to him, or any products that need to be done? You're like, just send them across to WA,、yeah. and I won't have anything to do with it. Did you want to see the products as well? Or you just like not totally give faith in you? Not total give faith in Matt, and that was the whole point: is、mm. the right hand shouldn't be talking to the left hand, as in, you know, the commercial guy.、Um, but I was also writing blogs as well, right? Like, but just if you're going to be writing or、uh, reviewing a bike, like you can't be compromised by saying like it's no good. Like, like that's just a tough thing to do, and、um, so I I I recognize that thankfully immediately, and、um, I think that you know. Was a was a good choice in hindsight. <laughs> Tell me about when Matt Deneef came involved, two thousand and thirteen. Understand it was a big decision for you. Things were moving forward. Tell me a little bit about that. So I had quit Rafa and was was doing this with just me and myself and Matt Wickstrom, and I did lots of had a lot of guest posts and stuff like that too. Like that allowed me a day of not writing and 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 as you know, you want to keep improving, so it kept on getting longer and longer. So I knew I needed someone to take the whole content part off my hands a little bit at least, so I could start focusing on growing this as a business. I was a big fan of cycling tips and had followed it since it started. Really, this is Matt Deneef, Wade's first formal hire at Cycling Tips back in two thousand thirteen. I was a blogger myself. I ran a, a blog about climbing uphill and all the great climbs around Melbourne and Victoria. And I was also a journalist at the time at a website called The Conversation. And Wade followed both my blog and the site that I worked for. And when he was looking to expand Cycling Tips, he 
uh, got in touch and asked me if I'd be interested in in joining Cycling Tips really was a, a landmark uh, publication in the, the cycling space here in Australia, certainly, and, and grew to be much further beyond that. Um, and so the opportunity to be involved in that was uh, yeah, one that I was very keen to take. I, I asked him if he wanted to work for me, and he took this massive leap of faith. And it was my first employee, and it was, you know, along with like getting married and having a baby and moving to Australia, like that, those are that handful of huge decisions of my life. Which, it's your baby, you know, it's something you yeah. built up and it's it's transitioning, as you said then, from something that's just fun to do and you're in the back of your mind, I know you still care, but you tell yourself the whole time, ah, you know what, if this turns into nothing, who cares? Yeah. But actually, you know, in the back of your mind, you would be pissed off. But now yeah. suddenly people are involved. So now you almost like you tell yourself, this can't fail and I don't want this to fail. This mm. is something I've built up too big. I've spent too much time now. I get the feeling that's what sort of happened when you, you've you got Matt now involved. Now you're like, okay, Matt's working out. I want to bring Andy in. Or is it, what, what were the, the steps to follow? just been made redundant and I was sort of I was about to have a kid I wasn't sure what to do this is Andy Van Bergen Wade's second hire at Cycling Tips back in 2013 I was doing a little bit of consulting work you know in in the cycling industry just a few little bits and pieces here and there and then Matt calls me up out of the blue and he's like listen Andy so I'm obviously working at Cycling Tips it's just me and Wade we are about to go across to the Tour de France Wade has just landed his biggest client ever which is uh, Eurosport, and there's no way he's going to be able to service it because obviously the two of us, we've got to be taking photos, writing articles, everything like that. So he wants to know, would you come on and kind of service that client? And then at the same time, you know, while you're working there, if you happen to be able to land a couple of extra couple of uh, clients, then you pay for your role and maybe there's a job there for you if you're interested. And I was like, hell Yeah. And I just saw this as an opportunity to just throw myself into this uh, full on. So I definitely oversold it to my wife, Tam. I made it sound like I had a job that wasn't there. And I worked like seven days a week on this for a month while they're at the tour. I did land a couple of clients. Uh, Eurosport, the campaign went really well. They won a couple of industry awards off the back of it, which was really good. And uh, yeah, I, I had a job after that. <laughs> What about in the in that earlier time there, like, you know, the ideas, they're sort of morphing now, like you said, it's no longer Wade's story, you know, and, and the cycling tips, were they running out? You know, I'm talking about the actual tips. Yeah. You know, when at this point here, were you starting to go, look, I want to go across and cover the tour. Now as a more of a journalistic sort of style, what's going on in races? When was that sort of transition? You're right. Like the tips, like you, you can only say so much, right? And then after a while, I'm like, you know what would be the ultimate thing is if I got Mitch Docker or someone to write, like someone who knows this stuff for real to write for me every once in a while and tips and stuff. And and it was quite an interesting moment where I think I articulated that maybe in the comments or wherever. And people are like, no, we want to hear from someone mm. relatable on our level. We don't want to hear from somebody who we can't relate to, who we're never going to be as good at. So mm. i like, well, that's interesting. Damn it! I'm stuck doing these I'm tips. Stuck doing this, but <laughs> I I also knew that I was running out of stuff to talk yeah. about that I could speak about. That like I couldn't put together a training program. I couldn't talk about many things with authority. 
So that's when you start interviewing people who can, mm. right? And then, you know, I would get the odd thing where like, it was just the beginning of Twitter as well. And I would see pros engaging with things or like, even if I did a tip where you would get some world tour pro contributing to something I said, it was like, wow, that Simon Garen's responded to my tweet or whatever. Right. It was amazing. And, and, um, but like, I remember Simon Garen's was my first interview ever. And, oh, I was so nervous. And it was just sort of, he was in the, a circle of friends that I was in and, and he met me and I just thinking back, he was so generous for doing that because like, why would he? And, you know, and, but he, he did. And he, I, I asked him and it was a yes right away. And, um, you know, I remember asking him like, you know, what do you eat before a race or like all those things that people could use. Yeah. But like after, you know, you run a things to say, you start interviewing people and then you start interviewing <laughs> your idols mm-hmm. and, and, and on and on. And, um, and then a few things start getting thrown your way about like tidbits of news or whatever to talk about. And yeah, it just sort of progresses from there and you you become very much a fan of the sport too. Right. So you want to talk about the news and. Because at the time, you know, cycling news was around mm. um, and it was a place that people went for results and, mm. you know, stories and who knows what else. That was something that that you were thinking. Okay, that's something that we could we could include some of that stuff, or were you looking at other other websites as well and going, that's something we want to take from everything and morph our own path. At that moment there, when you're heading across to the tour, what was the vision of cycling tips? As you said, it was no longer just a, a tip based website. You were reviewing yeah. tech. You were going to a race. What was the vision at that point? It was always covered as a fan, from the eyes of a fan, because. I couldn't talk to Alberto Contador, but I remember one tour following Kenny Van Hummel, the mm. Lantern Rouge, and I could talk to him maybe, but and I couldn't actually, but <laughs> but I thought maybe I could. Like if if there's one person I could talk to, it's not going to be Contador. So I'm like covered as a fan, cover the stories that nobody else is covering, and and like when I would go to the tour down under, it was like from the roadside um, with other fans and mm. and. But also too, like I remember cycling news still had like little pixelated photos and Mm. gosh, they, for the most part still do. And I remember like, why can't we do big photos Mm. full screen? And I'm like, did a couple lines of code, did made that far, all our photos full screen. And I had a lot of great people helping me like, uh, photographers or budding photographers. One guy named Vera Patel, who I owe so much to because he was a very good photographer um, other friends of mine as well who just contributed whenever they were at a race or whatever. And it was a time of digital SLRs and we're just like, wow, like this is because there weren't iPhone cameras or they weren't very good mm. uh, not good enough. But I get all this amazing, like from behind the scenes photography and we'd post that full, full image and that wasn't seen anywhere. And I'm like, well, the second cycling news wants to do that. I'm dead. Cause I got mm. no differentiator and still, um, most places post small photos, but it's also because, you know, people are viewing this on mobile now, so it's not needed. But at the time I thought, let's just do these little things different. And that sort of paid off. Tell me a little bit about when things started to just continually grow and bike exchange, um, came involved with the company now. Mm. So things are really sort of amping up now and, Tell me a little bit about the progression there. Things were things were going well. Like we were like 
we did an event called the Giro della Donna. We're like, we're cyclists. We talk to cyclists. Why don't we do a Grand Fondo? Like the world was a blank canvas. We were just going to do whatever we felt made sense. We had a shop going. We had this editorial and advertising business going. Like it was- it A was, merchandise shop. Yeah. And and again, this is the time of just Instagram just starting and we started with socks and- and um. We had an you know, online shop. We had a space. We had it online. Oh, yeah. uh, sorry, yeah, it was online, but yeah. it was boxes back yeah. in our office and stuff. But it was also like, like I said, social media in 2015. But I could see what Facebook was doing to our business, and where it was like really good. Like I would have X number of brands at, you know, maybe twenty five hundred dollars a month to advertise and that ticked over every month and we were signed every year. Now it was like, okay, well we have $2,000 to spend with you. Mm. Um, you know, what are you going to do? Like it was a campaign after campaign versus, Hey, let's lock in a year. And this was like, this is really tough now because there's a sales cycle every time I want to, um, do business with these guys and there's all their money is going to Google and Facebook. Now mm. this is killing our business. And it was like, we have, how, how are we going to survive? Because we're, this isn't, we weren't running out of money, but I saw this brick wall that was heading mm. up, heading towards us. We have to change. And we started talking about how do we do a membership plan? Well, no one's going to pay for content. Like that was not at that time of the internet history that people pay. I just for go content. somewhere else. You're just trying to keep people. Yeah. You don't want to deter them at that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I started thinking about like, how do I get investment? I didn't know anything about that. And you know, I was talking to the guys from Pink Bike, the world's largest mountain bike website, and because they're fellow Canadians, and and they, you know, I neither of us really knew how to do this unless they bought cycling tips, but they weren't going to pay anything for it either, right? And even though it was worth something, like we were probably doing, like you know, a million dollars of revenue at the time. Um, in fact, I remember that's how much we were doing because it was just wow. like a big landmark. Like I can't believe we just did this, and. Um, that you know, and, and we, every bit was reinvested back into the business, and we'd lose a bunch on our grand fondo, and <laughs> you know, and just making mistakes everywhere. But it was good. But I knew that that wasn't going to last forever with the way Facebook was happening um, or going about things. And and so, how do I get investment? Um, the conversations with Pink Bike were not. There was no real clear way of doing this or across the globe. But Bike Exchange had just raised a whole bunch of money, um, and I had knew this just through talk you know, in the town and stuff. And, you know, and, and I went and spoke to the two co-founders and with no presumptions, just like, you know, I'd like to get into the U S market and grow bigger sometime. And I know you have just opened up in the U S market. Like we have a huge U S audience. Is there anything we could ever do together? Because mm. classifieds or, you know, buy and sell had always been a mainstay of, media, like in newspapers, right? Like the classified section and, you know, they made them a lot of money and I knew that. And maybe this is something that could combine as well, since I don't have that and you don't have this. Mm. And on paper, it made a lot of sense and they were extremely respectful and had big plans and visions. And they're like, well, why, why don't we buy you and you take a shareholding in the company? And that was, you know, a, a bit of cash and then a lot large part of equity and it all made sense. And that was like really, really uh, smooth, equitable way of doing it. And we did that. And mm. that that was 
I was fantastic at first. How what's the, what's the company looking like at this point? You know, we're about 2015. Company's about sort of you know five, six, seven years old. If you want to go right back to the first blog, yeah. Um, how many employees have you got? How many you know writers have you got? What what's to, to give everyone a bit of an idea? Like you said, the revenue was about a million dollars. At that point, you know, Bike Exchange came in. Give us an idea of where it was sort of midway through, I guess, of this journey. Yeah. Um, we got an editor named Neil Rogers who was based in Boulder. He was, you know, came from Vela News and then James Huang is a tech editor. James was like this, well, both James and Neil were these like halo, um, you know, profile hires who were really good at what they did. Like that was a those are big names to get in the U.S. industry to get into that market. You'll you'll get noticed, right? Um, and then a sales guy as well. I think that was three main hires we at the time to get into the U.S. market. So we were you know around this ten at the time, right? We also had um, another sales guy as well, and so we were around ten people at the time. And you know, million dollars might sound like a lot, but it's not paying for ten people, right? And <laughs> So where what was your role at that point? You know, you weren't writing per se, or were you still writing? I would rarely write. I was so busy. Um, I'd have a meeting of like, are we hitting our sales targets? So what's the pipeline look like? To, hey, we're building an online store, like an online marketplace like Bike Exchange did. Um, we're um, doing an event. Like it was just like a little bit of everything and I could not focus or had ex- I didn't have expertise in anything but and then also like pushing this editorial like I was almost I wasn't the editor but I was really getting my hands dirty in it because I wasn't happy with it as well mm. just because I didn't know how to write KPIs for for that like this creative side of the business which I could end up ruining by putting like targets and KPIs of say traffic or whatever and then sales was difficult. And, oh gosh, I was just spread so thin and going everywhere at the time. And it was, um, I mean, I've got good memories of it, but it was really tough. <laughs> In the mix of all that, and I'm, I'm just sort of relating to myself now, I'm not saying it at all I'm at that kind of step, but sometimes it's nice, I can imagine having someone removed from the business and people to talk to, to help you with the vision that you originally had. Mm. And as it sounds like here, it was a mess. There was stuff going everywhere and you were yeah. like me, like me just yeah. saying yes to everything. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Next thing you know, you've got 12 projects on the go. Yeah. Yeah. How were you able to sort of steady the storm and actually keep focusing on your vision at that point and understand like in the next, the coming years um, to go on that pathway? Yeah. I always had this conflicting view of like stick with something and be really good at it, and it will become something. And then also know when to cut your losses and move on, right? So, I mean, this was still all very new with, like, the event and our marketplace and getting into the U.S. market. And so it was, like, not not late enough to say cut your losses, but also I, still, I believed in sticking with things and having good people, and we had good people. And, um, but, like we weren't making money at this point. We were losing a lot. Mm. Yeah. Like this was not profitable and bike exchange were the ones who were funding this and they had never given me any guidelines. Like they're new to this as well. Right. But they never said like, here's X dollars. This is what you have to spend. It was just this kind of open checkbook and they Mm. were burning money in their business elsewhere. And it was pretty messy. And then like 
that's going to that, stop it sometime. Was that exciting because you were able to do things you probably couldn't have done without their investment? Or was it scary because you're like, how come we're not seeing return for this stuff? Yeah, at first it was exciting. Then after a while, it was like, this can't go on, right? Mm. Like, this is, you know, can blow $5 million in a heartbeat. And I'm like, this can't go on, but like, who's going to make the tough decision on cutting an arm of this or whatever, right? So there were scary moments in there where it was like, are we going to completely shut cycling tips down? Like, you know, like we have to raise more money to keep going. And, you know, we we would have to do that for the overall business, not just cycling tips, like a bike exchange as well. And we're all in this together because I, I need this. I need bike exchange mm. to work as well because I'm invested in this now. So it was many, many sleepless nights. And mm. eventually it really came to like a halt. Like we had only a few months of money left for the overall business. And we have to make some really tough decisions and meetings were going on now behind my back that or that not behind my back but that I wasn't invited to I had no say in but meanwhile I'm still a director of not just cycling tips but the overall company and and I'm now like legally responsible for things that I are we trading solvent I don't know things like that that it's really started scaring me and I knew that you know I, I, I was the ones that suggested like we have to sell cycling tips Not only was Cycling Tips mine, but I was a shareholder in the bigger business, which that's my future wealth. Like that's that's my super whatever, right? That's so I had to make these tough decisions as well. And you know, in the background, we had been talking to Pink Bike, which I knew was bought by private equity, um, and they were looking for possible new opportunities. And I had been speaking with those guys since I, you know. Like I said earlier, like we first spoke it and ages ago. So luckily we were able to do a deal with Pink Bike to buy cycling tips. And you know, and then and you know, that was at a loss and but still they we were able to get out of bike exchange, limit that liability. I would move over, didn't have to deal with them anymore, except I was a shareholder in the business that I could make no more decisions in. It was a brutal, brutal time. Like at the time I was angry. I was, I'm lucky I've never, you know, had mental health issues, but looking back, like if there's any sort of depression I've ever gone through, it would have been during that time. It was like a dark period. If I had to endure that any more than six months or whatever, like it was horrible. Um, but luckily that was just a circumstantial thing than a Mm. mental health issue. And I, I can relate to that now. And it was horrible. Looking back on that and you, if you want to pull yourself up on any kind of mistakes or, you know, decisions that you make, would you have changed anything, you know, because with those big decisions you were making and the money you were spending, it was growing the business from the outside. Mm. The business was becoming bigger. Yeah. And it was everywhere. And, you know, you, like you said, you were at an event or you were just growing it and people were doing more articles and, but on the same side, money was being spent that you Mm. didn't have. Yeah. So to think back on that, what would you have changed? I don't know if there's anything we could have changed, to be honest. Um, Absolutely nothing. I did. I made the best decisions I could have at the time with what was in front of me. And it's led me to where I am now. I, I certainly learned a lot by it going wrong. If it all went right, I wouldn't have learned 
anything and it it was tough at the time. It was, like I said, one of the worst times of my life, but I feel like I really grew from that and it allows me to do and see around the corners with what I'm doing now. And I've always said, I'm not going to ever make those mistakes again. I'm just going to make a whole new set of mistakes. Mm. So pink bike, in a way, I guess, saved cycling tips, but cycling tips as a brand was in a really good spot. Everyone from the outside, it was doing great things. Mm. Moving into sort of that next phase, I feel like, you know, it's the, the last phase more or less. It's like cycling tips was rising up through the pandemic before we saw the end of cycling tips. We'll get to that in a minute, but tell me a little bit about once pink bike got involved and as you sort of came out of or dug yourself out of that little hole you're in. Yeah, it's exactly right. Um, we, I think from the outside, it looked like we were kicking goals and mm. everything and no one knew the, uh, I guess, financial strife we were in. But um, within six months of Pink Bike um, acquiring us um, and changes we made, um, we were profitable again, right? It, it was just like, oh, this is a breath of fresh mm. air. We're we're working with people who understand our business, aren't sending us off in every single direction, who are, um, uh, they have a structure that we could almost plug into as well and, and use our people to, to their strengths. And I got, I owe a lot to, um, you know, one person, just you know, Kaylee Fretz, who I believe he joined when we were in bike exchange or maybe just sort of on the, um, the, the, the verge actually, but he brought a lot to the table in terms of, becoming our editor-in-chief and also doubling down on everyone's strengths. Mm. So as a, I guess, a publication, we got a lot better. Like we just, we, I can't understate how much he did a good job at getting the best out of everybody and then also everybody executing on that, right? And But it was also too like the way Pink Bike operated in many ways we changed to, you know, and we didn't have an open checkbook either, right? Like it was like, we have to make this work and here's what we have to do to do that. Mm. And, but they just, they left me alone as well to do that. And they were very hands off, but we also were part of their, you know, the sales team we, we shared the operations team we shared. Um, you know, it was, it was like the best time in the history of cycling tips where we were profitable. We were, doing a job that we were all happy with and we enjoyed. And it was, it was a really, really good time. And it was a great team of people. And, you know, we, we were very separate, but like we took inspiration off what pink bike was doing in the mountain bike world, vice versa with us. Mm. They were all people. We, I learned a lot from, it was, it was great. I have fun memories of that time. Tell me about Kaylee Fritz. Like you said, a really integral part of the end part of cycling tips. and I wanted to go work there. This is Kaylee Fretz, who came on Cycling Tips in early 2017. And, and this was sort of a couple of years in the making, was I just had a huge amount of kind of respect and also uh, interest in what he was building in, in that it seemed cool and new and different. I think that there was some level of kind of... of mutual respect for what the other person was doing like he liked my work obviously of Elenews that's the reason why he wanted to to hire me and bring me over and I liked his work in terms of building this thing and and yeah just kind of just kind of went from there really uh Wade 
was in the process of expanding in the U.S. still. They, they, he had James Wong and he had Neil Rogers uh, come on and, you know, the U.S. audience was growing really fast. And I think they were looking for more kind of U.S. voices and people that could talk about, talk about bike racing. Uh, and it just worked. Kaylee came from VeloNews, and I had crossed paths with Kaylee many times at the tour or whatever event, and always had a huge respect for what he wrote or what he did. And he had a podcast uh, at VeloNews, which was, I didn't listen to, but I knew it was successful. I wasn't really into podcasts at the time. And that was the thing he said he was going to bring over. We had a sort of, we got started, but it wasn't a great podcast. But at the same time, getting started is always much better than having a, like, I'd rather have a bad product and get started, right? Well, no one's listening. But he brought that aboard, kind of took it totally in-house, really um, nurtured that into something that was really good and became an integral part of our business. And, you know, um, Neil Rogers, who was our EIC editor-in-chief, he was taking more of a backseat and um, wanted to take care of his daughter more and stuff. So Kaylee stepped up and took that position and like I said, he just got the best out of everybody. And, you know, to everybody's credit as well, like they did their best work at what they were good at too. So it was really, really, it wasn't a big fork in the road, but it was profound in terms of how much better it made us. And um, yeah, so Kaylee was huge on that front. Well, talk to me about 2020 Outside Inc. Um, with Pink Bike and Trail Forks, they acquired cycling tips. How did this all come about? Because like mm. you said, then you're on the right sort of trajectory. You're happy working with Pink Bike. How did this next partnership or even would you call it a partnership? How did this all come about? Well, it was an acquisition, not really a partnership as the press release might have said. But So Pink Bike was owned by private equity when Outside bought us. And that PE group, was they were really great to work with and they had a very hands-off approach. But at the end of the day, PE's MO is usually to flip businesses. And after Outside, having raised a ton of venture capital, I assume Outside offered a price that they couldn't say no to. We didn't really have a say in any of it. And I probably shouldn't talk too much about what went on during my time at Outside. It's still relatively fresh, and I'm sure as time goes on, my emotions will fade away. But... um yeah, it was a it was a pretty messed up time. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, I wish them all the best. There are a lot of good people who work there. Let's talk about when things begin to sort of downfall. Um, when you resigned, August two thousand twenty-two, mm. things started to crumble. I guess you know you obviously could see that from the inside from the very beginning, day one, like you said. But you hope for the best. You did extra little projects like Venga, mm. but ultimately it came to a point where you're like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when um I was I went back to Canada to visit family and this was like the first time in 5 years because of the timing with COVID and um I wasn't really in a bad way mentally but like was really like what am I going to do? Am I going to go back into Am I going to be like a, a salesperson for a tech company or like, what am I going to do with myself? And send Motram an email? Send that seriously <laughs> crossed my mind, like everything. And I had no idea, not a clue, but doing this again was not on the cards, right? Mm. I'm not going to put myself through that again. I'm not going to go and try to solve the same puzzle all over again as well. I was put into motion to basically like destroy 
cycling tips, fellow news. I, I was managing um, all of those at the time. I was not just managing cycling tips and, and um, I was put into motion by some new guru of uh, the chief content officer. And I knew that she really didn't know what we were trying to do either. And there was very little direction. And it was just like, now I'm set, I'm put into motion to actually destroy what I've built. And that's, that's the last straw. I can't do that. So, wow. so that was just like, no, I'm not making you this presentation outlining how we're going to kill it. Like no decisions could be made. No one was taking responsibility for not making them. Um, so my wife, uh, Christine, she supported that I quit, but she just wanted to know that I had a plan. So I made up a plan. I just said, I'm starting another business. I don't know what that business is going to be, but like, I, that was a very gratifying and maybe it'll be in, um, I don't, I don't know, but it'll come to me, but it will be like starting another business. And, um, she was like, okay, that's good enough. <laughs> she just, she's much more of the risk adverse of both of us. I just know everything I've done has worked out. Yeah. Right. So I have faith in that. I know if I'm stressed out enough, I'll, I'll get set into action, whether it's, um, you know, like I thought about just doing, doing a podcast, right? Mm. Like whatever. And, or a sub stack. And that's what I did. I opened up a sub stack account, um, this writing email newsletters and, um, I had quit and, you know, I, I had very little co- contact from anybody actually at, at Wollongong world championships. It was very, very, um, humbling how the cycling tips guys, they had a bit of a going away surprise party for me at the, um, one of the pop-up event, uh, pop-up shops there. And all of our Velo club members, that was the membership program. Like so many, it's probably 300 people there. I was presented with this beautiful gravel bike that bomb made for me with all the employee mm. signatures on it. It was like, wow, like how gratifying that this journey was like, I have never, never expected that a job would give me this back. Mm. And it was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And 15 or 14 years of like, all I've heard of is like, why aren't you doing this? Why did you cover it that way? Why did you like, you're just mm. getting like shit thrown at you from every yeah. direction from the audience or advertisers or whatever. But now like, like I kind of realized that maybe I did give a little, a little something back my little corner of this mm. community that maybe I did add something to it. And I can't tell you how gratifying that was. And it was pretty amazing. So um, but still, I never wanted to do it again. Never was I going to do that again. What about when the when the you know the staff and the the employees that you sort of corroborated together and you know handpicked almost slowly started to be laid off, and you could slowly see that destruction? How did that make you feel? I was blindsided by that. Yeah, well, the the big weekend was when uh, we found out that uh, Dave Rome, Matt Deneef and Kaylee Fretz had all been made redundant. This is Andy Van Bergen. Three really, really big roles. Didn't make any sense. There wasn't a lot of justification behind that. Obviously, it was quite mortifying for the team to, to think that that could happen. And I guess... You know, when I was asking questions myself about how this could potentially happen and, and with some of the executive team at Outside, when I felt that the the justification wasn't quite there, I it was an easy decision for me to, to not stay there myself as well. So I, I tended my resignation um, pretty soon after as well. 
I think in the end, like pretty much everyone at CT decided to leave and it, it shows what a strong family um, that, that group was. Yeah, just a, a really hugely sad chapter, really. This is Matt Deneef. To see cycling tips go the way that it did. You know, there were a handful of layoffs towards the back half of last year and uh, I was one of them in November 2022. Um, I was very sad to leave. Uh, I thought I was still doing great work and I had a lot more to offer, but, you know, couldn't do much about that. And then a lot of, you know, more redundancies followed and a lot of staff left and it, it, it didn't take long for things to fall over completely. Yeah, I think just the the overwhelming feeling for me is just one of sadness that so much work kind of came to a close and that Cycling Tips now no longer exists. Um, and it's not even like the content still exists because in a lot of cases, the old stuff that we've done hasn't survived the merger across to the new place. So, you know a decade or more worth of, you know, well over a decade worth of hard work from a lot of people, it just kind of disappeared into the ether. And that's that's heartbreaking, you know, for for people that have contributed to the site, you know, freelancers, uh, and certainly for those of us that work there and put so much energy and passion and love into the project. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking, to be honest. I mean, wait, so Wade was out in, was it September, end of August, early September? This is Kaylee Fritz. So he actually missed some of the best best bits. Uh, and by best, I mean worst. Uh, he missed some of the worst bits <laughs> because he was actually not in the organization for, for the sort of the real, the real downslide at the end there. Uh, yeah, in those last couple months, what was really clear to me was that there was a pretty insurmountable difference in vision for what t- cycling tips should be and also for the importance of things like Velo Club, the membership uh, that we had, and you know, every, there were lots of conversations that happened in that time that made that difference in vision really obvious to me. And there were some that were more heated than others. There were, you know, there were times when we were told to do things that we that we didn't think were right, and and I absolutely pushed back on pretty firmly. Um, basically, like the, the disagreements came down to what I felt was sort of a, a lack of value put on like what made us unique and sort of a misunderstanding of where our value actually came from. And, you know, I, I, I remain convinced that the real value of cycling tips was the fact that it was, you know, it wasn't completely different, right? Like if you, if you, if you look at from, from, from way back, <laughs> Velo news and cycling tips look really similar, right? They cover the same things, uh, they're largely focused on, on, in fact, almost identical beats, right? Uh, but in the same way that the New York Times and Fox News, uh, for any American listeners out there, you know, cover ostensibly the same things, but in quite different ways. Uh, I felt like that was sort of the same case with, with us and Vela News. So when Kaylee got laid off, I'm like, well, Kaylee is someone who, lit, like, he really does bring something to the table. We should talk, Kaylee we started running the numbers and like, could this work without advertising? Could just a membership model work? We know the formula for this. Now we know how to do this. And Kaylee could do the editorial side. I knew how to do the commercial side. The numbers stacked up. Like Mm. we could possibly do this. And this isn't starting from the same place. There was Wade's blog. We would start from a place where 
we could take these other people that were laid off and maybe build something, right? Mm. And, you know, we had a lot of goodwill and just our names. And sadly, Cycling Tips was, it was just being chipped away at because of, you know, what what Outside was doing. And I, I honestly hoped, like, I really didn't want that to happen. I wanted to leave behind a legacy of like, I built this and I can look at that with pride. Mm. But that was not what was happening, right? You know, and especially after they left, things started changing in a hurry. And names that were, I'd never heard of before started writing for it. And now it was completely unrecognizable to me, right? Like people were leaving because it was just like, one by one, people were leaving the business that that I had hired or Kaylee had hired. Mm. Yeah, so it was just like now it's this 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 thing. The only thing I recognized was the logo, and I wish it did carry on, right? But to now now to this point, um, you know, like it's now gone. It's Doesn't literally it not even a Wikipedia page exists on it. Fifteen years work of my life just now completely gone because all the backlinks are broken, but. I've got no, I've got no regrets. I've got no, um, I'm not angry at anybody at outside. I'm glad. I hope, I hope they do, you know, bring something to the cycling community. Like I legitimately do. And yeah, but just all our work is gone. And that's, that's sad because there's no, no, nothing, nothing left. (laughs) Now thinking about where you are going and you've spoken about it a little bit now, Escape Collective, firstly, you spoke about talking with Kaylee. Hey, this is what we know from Cycling Tips. This is what we want to do. These are the sort of things we liked. What have you learnt from that process, those 14 years, that mm. you're now moving to this new this new space, similar space? What are the key things you've learnt that you're going to go, right, that's it. I learnt this. This is a common mistake I was making, or this was the one big mistake, looking back, going yeah. into doing you know this new venture. One thing is that who you take money from matters with investment. Like all money is not created equal and who you take it from with, with their investment. Cause we needed to, we needed to do some, get some friends and family money to get this going. Right. And, um, I was very careful with who I asked and what their expectations were and what happens if I lost it all. I'm a lot more concerned about losing friends and family money than I am my own because that's like mm. an embarrassment, a responsibility, a a promise. Um, if I lost my own, no one else has to know except me and my wife. And Just we'll go work in the factory and yeah. get it back. Yeah, but like this comes with a lot more responsibility, yeah. I find. You know, and if I was to take institutional investor money, like there's only a few ways that can go. That's like you go public, you within a certain time frame, you sell to a strategic buyer in a certain time frame, or you, you go bust. Like there's there's not many ways to go. The other thing I learned was like I know shareholder documents inside and out because it went wrong and I had to rely on the edge case scenarios that you need to consider. These all the legals up front with starting a new business, I knew how to structure this. So I am gonna stay in control with these decisions for a long, long time to come. Mm. But what you take out of that process, and I say this about when I was, I can only refer back to when I was racing, I set myself the goal. 
most times I didn't actually achieve the end goal, but it was mm-hmm. what I tried to achieve on the way there that I learned so much out of it. You know, it was, yeah. a, it was a failure because I didn't get the goal, but didn't mean the whole project was a failure because I did all these things trying to achieve this goal and that led me down another road. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Fail quick is always this sort of saying and that it, I, I don't like that saying because like you have to actually don't fail and drop it like fail but like move move the goalposts go yeah. aim somewhere else um take that don't take it as a failure that's for sure right and um and don't give it up don't just leave it all like on the table um th- that that journey is an amazing thing and gosh the life mitch like <laughs> this journey even just sitting here today speaking with you for example like it's like holy shit i i got to pinch myself a million times. Like I just remember back when the first product launch I ever went to, when it was just me as a blog, BMC asked me to come to Switzerland for a product launch. And I got to go to the tour de France after that. And wow. that was at the time, the closest thing to a dream coming true I've <laughs> ever had. I get to go to the tour de France. Like what? Like it was beyond my wildest dreams. I never thought I'd go to the Tour de France. It wasn't even something I dreamt for. I don't have big dreams in life, but so many things that I've just been sitting around thinking like, this is a moment where I have to just reflect on. And that's what it's taking me on. I don't know where this is going to take me, this escape journey. Um, but we're, we're, we haven't reached cruising altitude yet. Like we're just on liftoff and we're burning a lot of fuel to get there. Right. <laughs> but um, so I've got to be very careful and I'm not getting cocky by any means. I'm not resting on our laurels and, um, we'll see where it goes. That was my last question to ask you what the vision was of escape. And you more or less answered it then that you, you're not exactly sure yet. You just sort of, you've set up the, the, the foundation mm. of what you've learned from those years and what you've taken the good parts from it. Like you said, I'm not going to get involved in advertising and I want to build this membership base, which you've done. I guess, yeah. You, to, do you have anything more to add on, you know, where the vision, where the future lies for, you know, Wade Wallace in, I'm sure you've done a little 10-year plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't, don't need to hear all the nuts and bolts of it, but, you know, just give everyone a bit of an idea of where, how this is going to be different, or maybe it's not going to be different. Yeah. The luxury we have this time around is to start with the end in mind. And the most fundamental thing that we're doing differently is that we're starting off with a membership business model. Mm. And what I mean by that and why that's so important to us is because, you know, if we create content of value that people will actually pay us for, that's a really, really good thing. The incentives are in line for us to create the best content we can for our members. And that gives us a predictable revenue stream and predictable cost structure such that we can service that and grow based on that. We have the confidence to invest uh, when we have that 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 business model. So that's really important. I know things are going to change a hundred times in the next ten years, but for now, I've taken a lot of inspiration from the website The Athletic. And uh, if you're not familiar with The Athletic, it's a, sort of a mainstream sports website that has seen the destruction of local reporting. Um, and local uh, sports coverage and they've brought that back under a member model and you know any team any player whatever there's going to be a reporter covering that for your your local favorite NHL NFL team or whatever so 
that's really, really cool. And I think it's a huge amount of value and I absolutely love it. And I see what they're doing and could think of nothing better than to do this for all the different niches within cycling, mm. right? Whether it's uh, tech or uh, racing or gravel or bikepacking or mountain biking, it, it, it's endless. And, you know, to be something to somebody rather than everything to nobody is kind of the goal here. And we want to go deep with these various niches. And that's, that's, that's important to us. And I think media is going to be unrecognizable in the next five years with these large language models coming out. But, you know, I want to be flexible so that we can experiment and embrace the change. And I see a lot of opportunity there. But the one fundamental truth that will always endure is that a good story will always be a good story. And that's what's never going to change with us, right? So we're going to keep telling them. Brilliant, mate. Um, (laughs) I was going to ask you one last question. This is just for me, life in the peloton. And I know you've given a, um, a couple of bits of advice to me already. If you just sort of sum it up, to other entrepreneurs out there, you know, in their bedroom blogging, podcasting. I know there's a million people out there podcasting and and trying to start something up. Mm. I've reached out to you for advice off air because I value that real advice you give. Um, you don't talk over my head. You can relate to me where I'm at. I guess, you know, to sum it up, can you give people like myself or even a young version of yourself that piece of advice? Yeah, um, I would probably say like like you've done. Don't you don't need to wait for everything to be perfect and a million dollars in your bank account to start. Like y- you can start with a single podcast or a single pair of socks, right? Like, and that's what a lot of people they just get like hung up on this vision of like I want to start the biggest apparel company on earth or biggest media mm-hmm. brand on earth or whatever it might be, but like it all starts at like one thing, right? Mm. And building on top of another. And maybe one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever had that I always think about is my brother-in-law. He just said, just show up, Mm. right? And what he means by that is like, go out, go to, when he gave it to me, it was like, we're sitting there in Belgium. Amstel Gold Race was like two hours down the road. I'm just going to stop, watch this on TV today. Right. And he's like, no, go like, just, you just got to show up. Right. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, what's going to happen if you sit on the couch and you watch the TV, nothing, you're going to watch Amstel go to race. But if you show up to that race, you don't know no, what, who are you going to bump into? And something will happen. Something will happen. But it's so easy since you don't know what'll happen. Don't go. So anyway, I, I bumped into Phil Anderson and Phil mm. was on his like, I don't know, 30th anniversary of when he won it or whatever. I bumped into Phil and Phil invites me to the VIP area. I bump into some more friends and I just had the best day of my entire life (laughs) at Amstel Gold Race. Meanwhile, I could have been sitting on the couch and that has just happened time and time again where like someone wants to have coffee with me who, you know, and I'm like, why am I doing this? But I just show up and some profound piece of advice or another connection comes out of it or a year down the road, I bump into that person. It does lead to something like just show up is the smallest, easiest thing you can do, but it has led me in so many directions. Like not only I'm still gold, but like commercially as well in my, my career. So 
those two things I think are just pretty good pieces of advice that have been given to me that I live by. I hope you enjoyed this episode that was a bit different than the rest. For a long time now, people have been asking me to tell the cycling tip story, but I knew for the past couple years that it wasn't complete yet. Now the story is finished, and while I wish it had ended differently, I'm immensely thankful for the journey. If it had gone any other way, I wouldn't be here right now with this wonderful group of people here at the Escape Collective. I have countless people to thank who have helped me over the years who were not mentioned here. You know who you are, and please know that your contribution, no matter how small, will never be forgotten. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Mitch Docker for helping us tell our story and for putting this all together.